That treaty, signed in 1997, also committed each side not to invade the other's country. That's right. Russia promised in 1997 never to invade Ukraine. Hi there, this is Lee Turner, also formerly known sometimes as Robert Pym. Thanks very much for downloading this edition of Writing Books and Stories. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, this is Lee Turner in Vienna. As you know, most of the blogs and posts that I do and on which I do my podcasts are about my writing, about my novels and short stories and about existential issues and P.G. Woodhouse and Jack Reacher and loads of other great things. But just recently, with Russia invading Ukraine on the 24th of February 2022, I did a different post which was called a Russia-Ukraine war explainer. Why did I do this? Well, I'm, I'm a former ambassador in Kiev in Ukraine And a lot of people were asking me after the 24th of February, what on earth was going on? What was the background? How is it possible that a big, important country like Russia, with which the UK and other countries have worked closely, for example, on the Iran nuclear deal, and which has enjoyed such enormous respect in the past as a cultural powerhouse of the Bolshoi Ballet and Tolstoy and Rachmaninoff and Dostoevsky, etc., etc., could do such a barbaric thing as to invade its neighbour with a full-scale invasion, killing thousands of people and, of course, many Russian troops being killed as well. What on earth is going on, people said to me. So I wrote a short blog which has appeared on my rleeturner.com website. You can find a link with this podcast feel free to have a look. And it's called Russia-Ukraine War Explainer. I'll just read through it now. Several people, I say, have asked why the Russia-Ukraine war is happening. So here's some background, context and history. First of all, what's happening right now? The Russian invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February is the worst-case scenario that was possible at that point. The Russian leadership, President Putin, have launched a major unprovoked war against a peaceful neighbour to redraw the borders of Europe in the 21st century. That's a clear breach of international law. It's hard to know what's going to happen next because the Russian leadership often uses what they call maskirovka, which is kind of part of Russian military tactics, and it means trying to mislead people about what you're doing. That's expressing it politely. But let's look at a few of the very flimsy justifications that the Russian leadership put forward for this appalling military action. First of all, President Putin has said that Ukraine has become a hostile country to Russia. Let's look at that. Before 2014, when Russia invaded Ukraine by annexing Crimea and putting its troops into the far eastern regions of Luhansk and Donetsk, Ukraine was never hostile to Russia. Russian speakers in the east of the country lived in peace and stability 
until Russia invaded. Most Ukrainian people like Russians, and most Russian people like Ukrainians. Yet since Russia invaded eastern Ukraine in 2014, the Russian speakers of eastern Ukraine have faced eight years of conflict. That's the result of what Russia's done. They weren't being persecuted or bothered by anybody else. At no point before or since 2014 has Ukraine posed a military threat to Russia. Another allegation we've heard from the Russian leadership is that Russia is responding to a fascist or a Nazi threat from Ukraine. This is a nonsense claim. It repeats the propaganda playbook from 2014, when again Russia claimed that fascists were threatening Russian speakers in Ukraine to justify its invasion, and it repeats the propaganda playbook from 1961, when builders of the Berlin Wall, designed to stop East Germans leaving for the West, called it an anti-fascist protection wall, as if they built the Berlin Wall to protect the people of East Germany, presumably, from fascism. It's exactly the same ridiculous argument. And the fact that President Zelensky, the leader of Ukraine, is himself Jewish, makes it even more absurd. Why is Russia doing this? Well, Russia is in a perilous cycle of self-harm, with potential long-term damage to itself from its invasion of Ukraine, just as happened in 2014. I remember talking to my Russian friends back in 2014, and some of them were very pleased because Russia had, as they saw it, got Crimea back. And I said that this is really undermining Russia's long-term reputation, and also its long-term future, because if you start redrawing the borders of countries in Europe, you will lose respect and your trading arrangements will be worse, and in the long term, things won't go well. That's what I said in 2014. What actually happened after that was that between 2013 and 2020, Russian GDP per capita, that's how rich individual Russians are in nominal terms, fell by 37%. The Annexation of Crimea in 2014 did boost approval figures for President Putin, but since 2015, they've fallen. What's going to happen next? Maximum sanctions will now be triggered. The next hours and days will show the military situation. It looks, at the time of speaking, as if Russia is throwing more and more troops and equipment onto the battlefield and sanctioning more and more violent use of munitions, which is going to kill more and more civilians. But in the long term, whether or not Russia defeats Ukraine militarily, the new invasion is a lose-lose for Russia and its people, as well as a catastrophe for the people of Ukraine, and a grave threat to European and even world security over the months and years ahead. So where did this war come from? What's the origin of this crisis? Perhaps the single most important thing to understand about this catastrophic war is that the origins of it do not lie in Ukraine. They lie in Moscow. This war is all about keeping the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, in power. What does he really fear coming from Ukraine? 
he fears an invasion of democracy coming over the border, which could threaten his position. The recent trial of Alexei Navalny in a prison in Siberia shows how frightened President Putin is of democracy and from the accusations of corruption against him. The only threat to Russia is that which a democratic, successful Ukraine would, if it were allowed to develop, pose to the grip of the Russian leadership on power. President Putin may have a secondary related aim to secure himself a place in history as the leader who restored Russian greatness and to increase what he perceives as Russian security. He may have convinced himself that this is what he's doing. In fact, all of Russia's interventions since 2013, from a point of view of Russia, have been counterproductive. They've slowed Russian economic growth, and they've encouraged suspicion of Russian territorial intentions in Ukraine and elsewhere in Eastern Europe. As I said before, they've also made the lives of Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the east of the country, in the areas occupied by Russia, far, far worse than they were before Russia intervened in 2014. Back in 2014, many Russia experts couldn't really believe that an actual Russia-Ukraine war could break out because they thought Russia would never attack a friendly neighbour and couldn't achieve anything by doing so except to impoverish itself. But Russia did invade. Now, in 2022, it's done so again. What's all this we hear about genocide and fascism in Ukraine? Well, these so-called problems and the supposed threats they pose to Russia are inventions of the Russian leadership aimed at Russian audiences. The aim is to paint a picture of a supposed military threat and a supposed humanitarian crisis in order to justify Russian invasion of Ukraine. Most Russian people don't actually in any way dislike or feel enmity towards Ukraine. On the contrary, most Russians see the Ukrainians as fraternal neighbours, people a bit like them. Most Russians are sceptical about the case for war, and they don't like seeing major Russian casualties. This is why, on the day of 24th February, when the invasion began, President Zelensky of Ukraine spoke in Russian and appealed to Russians to oppose the war. Unfortunately, the state-controlled Russian media have been beating the war drums for years and telling Russian people that terrible things are happening to, to Russian speakers in Ukraine which, as I've said before, is simply nonsense. When I first wrote this blog on the 24th of February, I thought that if the war was over quickly without major Russian casualties, people in Russia would probably not mount large-scale protests. But since I wrote that, I have been surprised by the bravery of many Russians who have mounted anti-war protests in Russian cities, despite the risk that they'll be arrested. Furthermore, in a, in a modern war like this, atrocities that take place, such as the missile strike on an apartment block in Kiev that we saw on the morning of the 26th of February, or the shelling of Kharkiv, which we've seen in recent days, become instantly visible 
to people across the world via social media. Perhaps that fact will help to generate more opposition to the war in Ukraine. But of course, the confusion caused by the proliferation of fake images does complicate the picture. So if Ukraine is not threatening the people of eastern Ukraine, who is threatening them? It's worth bearing in mind that President Putin's talk of protecting so-called Russians in eastern Ukraine, they're really Russian-speaking Ukrainians, is disingenuous. Before Russian forces entered the region in 2014, there was no separatist movement in the east of Ukraine. The only reason Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the east are not living a peaceful, normal life, going to see Shakhtar play football and getting on with their day-to-day lives, the only reason is the occupation of these regions by Russian military forces eight years ago and the subsequent conflict. Before that, those people in the east of Ukraine, those Russian speakers close to the Russian border, they were living in peace and security before 2014. It's President Putin who has brought chaos and insecurity into their lives, unfortunately. What about the history? Nationalists of all kinds do tend to say such and such a territory is the ancient home of our people, or this bit of land has always belonged to us. The key date in this conflict for Ukraine and Russia is 1991. On the 1st of December 1991, Ukraine held a referendum on independence from the Soviet Union. No one has ever disputed the results of that referendum. 84% of the electorate took part, and of those voters, 92.3% voted for independence of Ukraine from the Soviet Union. In Luhansk and Donetsk, the two regions partly occupied by Russia since 2014, 83.9% of people voted in favour of Ukrainian independence. In Crimea, incidentally, which had the lowest figure in that referendum of people voting for independence from the Soviet Union, 54.2% of people in Crimea in that referendum voted for independence of Ukraine from the Soviet Union. One week after that referendum, on the 8th of December 1991, the leaders of Russia, Ukraine and Belarus signed the so-called Belovyezh, sometimes called the Belovyezha Accords, declaring that the Soviet Union had ceased to exist. Nobody did it to them. They decided to do it themselves. On the 21st of December, 11 of the 12 remaining Soviet republics, all except Georgia and the Baltic states, whose independence in the case of the Baltic states, the Soviet Union had recognised on the 6th of September 1991, signed an agreement called the Alma-Ata Protocol, reiterating the end of the Soviet Union and announcing the creation of a so-called Confederation of Independent States. On the 25th of December 1991, Soviet President Gorbachev resigned and the flag of the Soviet Union was lowered at the Kremlin for the last time and the flag of Russia was hoisted. All of these events were freely entered into by the countries concerned, whether it was Russia, whether it was Belarus, whether it was Ukraine. Nobody made anybody do those things. But the 1991 Bielovesh Accords did leave plenty of loose ends. 
They included the presence on Ukrainian territory of the world's third largest nuclear weapons stockpile, leftover Soviet weapons, and the presence in Sevastopol, in Crimea, of the Soviet Black Sea Fleet. Plus, the former Soviet republics also shared a currency, the Soviet ruble. In July 1993, Russia withdrew the Soviet ruble and introduced a new Russian ruble. This forced the other republics of the former Soviet Union to introduce their own currencies and become economically sovereign. Actually, the move echoed the introduction of the Deutschmark in the US, British and French occupation zones of Germany in June 1948. In response, the Soviet Union introduced the so-called Ostmark, which created East Germany as an independent economic entity. The point I'm making here, it was a decision by Russia in July 1993 to introduce the Russian ruble, and it was that, in addition to these other agreements already signed, that destroyed the Soviet Union. What about the nuclear weapons? Well, in December 1994, Russia, the US, the United States, and the UK, the United Kingdom, signed what was called the Budapest Memorandum in exchange for Ukraine, Belarus and Kazakhstan giving up nuclear weapons on their territory, the signatories promised they would respect those three countries' independence and sovereignty within existing borders. That's the borders of Ukraine, including Crimea, of course. The signatories, including Russia, promised to refrain from the threat or the use of force against those three countries, including Ukraine, and to refrain from using economic pressure on them to influence their policies. Russia, the US and the UK made those promises, although they didn't commit themselves to offering military support to defend against any threat to the sovereignty of Ukraine, Belarus and Kazakhstan. To sort out the Black Sea Fleet, on the 28th of May 1997, Ukraine and Russia signed another agreement, the Partition Treaty on the Status and Conditions of the Black Sea Fleet, dividing the the fleet and its armaments, so the actual ships, they divvied them up, between them. Ukraine also agreed to lease naval facilities in Sevastopol, in Crimea, to Russia for 20 years until 2017. That agreement, by the way, was extended by President Yanukovych of Ukraine in 2010, to run until 2042. And the partition treaty also allowed Russia to maintain up to 25,000 troops and their weapons in Crimea. So the idea that Russia didn't have a right to keep their troops or the Black Sea Fleet in, in Crimea or in Sevastopol is also not accurate. To back up the partition treaty, on the 31st of May 1997, a few days later, Ukraine and Russia signed the so-called Big Treaty. Its official title is the Treaty on Friendship, Cooperation and Partnership. In this treaty, both sides promised to respect the territorial integrity of the other and to regard existing borders as inviolable. So that was Russia agreeing that Ukraine, as it then was in 1997, 
was a sovereign country with its own boundaries, including Crimea, and Ukraine made the same promise. That treaty, signed in 1997, also committed each side not to invade the other's country. That's right. Russia promised in 1997 never to invade Ukraine. What happened? Russian forces annexed Crimea and intervened in the Donbass in 2014, and Russia abrogated both treaties. That means it withdrew from both treaties unilaterally on the 31st of March 2014. Ukraine then allowed the treaty to expire in 2019. What about Ukraine and NATO? So Ukraine began to talk about joining NATO in 2005, and it applied to join in 2008. Some NATO member states, including the US and the UK, and some Eastern European countries, favoured Ukrainian membership of NATO. Russia opposed it. Other NATO members, notably France and Germany, were concerned that offering NATO membership to Ukraine, or a path towards NATO membership, might provoke Russia. So there was basically a split amongst NATO members back in 2008. But because there were some important countries against offering NATO membership to Ukraine, it was put on ice at the Bucharest summit in April 2008, and it stayed on ice ever since. In 2014, following Russia's annexation of Crimea and support for insurgents in eastern Ukraine, Ukraine renounced its non-aligned status and expressed renewed interest in joining NATO. So what's happened? Has there been a shift in Ukraine's closeness to NATO since the Bucharest summit of 2008? Or has there been a shift since Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014? No, there hasn't. The only change is one brought about by Moscow. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014 made people across Eastern Europe, especially Ukrainians, more concerned about Russian aggression, not surprisingly. As a Ukrainian commentator wrote in 2014, he said, Russia, you may have won Crimea, but you've lost Ukraine. NATO, for its part, says that decisions to apply for NATO membership are a matter for individual sovereign states and that third countries like Russia cannot have a veto on that. What about the European Union and Ukraine? In 1994, Ukraine signed a partnership and cooperation agreement with the EU designed to boost economic integration. And over the following decade, some EU member states, such as Poland and the UK, supported granting Ukraine a so-called European perspective, i.e. acknowledging that Ukraine would one day join the EU. Some other EU member states, again notably Germany and France, did not want to give Ukraine a European perspective. But even without a perspective, the EU and Ukraine agreed many practical steps that deepened integration without offering a membership perspective. Later on, discussion focused on a potential association agreement, so that's a step further, between the EU and Ukraine, including what was called a Deep and Comprehensive Free Trade Agreement, a DCFTA. 
the DCFTA would have integrated Ukraine closely into the European Union. It would have given access for Ukraine to the EU's four freedoms, goods, services, capital and people, including visa-free travel. Progress was pretty slow because the EU had a lot of questions about the rule of law in Ukraine. But by November 2013, the EU was ready to sign the DCFTA. So was Ukraine, which at this time was led by the pro-Russian president Yanukovych. So he was all ready to sign, but then there was a U-turn in Russian policy, and Moscow pressured President Yanukovych not to sign, and he backed away from the DCFTA. Why did that happen? This is, in a way, the key point of this podcast. The Russian leadership has argued that Ukraine's European Union DCFTA was in some way a surprise and that Russia wasn't properly consulted. This is not true. The European Union held regular summits with Moscow from 1991 onwards, included in that were detailed briefings on Ukraine's EU integration efforts. I myself visited Moscow when I was British ambassador to Kiev in 2009. I was puzzled, to be honest, that Russia was so relaxed about Ukraine's relationship with the European Union because it ran contrary to Russia's efforts to build its own Moscow-dominated customs union with other former Soviet states. So I went to see the head of Russia's Ukraine department in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. It's one of those Stalin Gothic skyscraper blocks in Moscow. And I asked him if Russia minded Ukraine getting closer to the European Union. Not at all, he said. Of course, we'd rather they joined our customs union, but it's up to them. So at that point, 2009, Russia was very relaxed about Ukraine getting closer to the European Union, but then everything changed. And what changed everything were events in Russia itself. In 2011 to 2013, large-scale pro-democracy demonstrations took place in Moscow and other cities in Russia. These were called the Bolotnaya protests. It was these protests, large-scale protests in Russian cities in favour of democracy, that convinced President Putin he faced a real threat from democracy washing over from a successful democratic Ukraine. Following 2000, the year 2000, Russia has become an increasingly autocratic state with more and more pressure on opposition parties. In fact, there aren't any opposition parties in Russia now, and more and more control of the media, particularly television. President Putin is fairly popular in Russia, and it's possible if you had a free and fair election, he would win. But it's the nature of democracy that when you have an election, you don't actually know who will win. You certainly don't know in Ukraine. And so if democracy were to develop in Russia, and genuinely free and fair elections were to take place, President Putin would face an uncertain future. So these Bolotnaya pro-democracy protests in 2011 to 2013 led to a U-turn in Russia's policy on Ukraine's approach to the European Union. Moscow forbade Ukraine's president Yanukovych 
to sign the DCFTA in 2013. That in turn led to the so-called Maidan protests in Kiev and the ejection of President Yanukovych from power. In practice, as so often, Russia's policy of 2013 towards Ukraine backfired. The goal was to make a more pro-Russian Ukraine, but as a result of this intervention, as a result of stopping Ukraine from signing the DCFTA and then having the Maidan protests against that, we ended up with a Ukraine that was even more pro-European than before. Now, as those Maidan protests in 2014 created chaos in Kiev, the Russian leadership saw an opportunity to take back Crimea, and they seized it. The Russian leadership also attempted to bring about uprisings in various Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine, including Dnipropetrovsk and Kharkiv, and also in Odessa in the west of the country. Most of these uprisings failed completely. There's a bit of a misreading of the situation, unfortunately, by the Russian leadership, which says very often that Ukraine isn't a real country and doesn't really believe that Ukrainians feel that they belong to Ukraine. They they say repeatedly that these are really Russians who speak Russian in the east of Ukraine. So they expected that people would rise up in 2014 in support of these uprisings, but nobody did. And by the end of 2014, Russia controlled only half of the two most easterly regions of Ukraine, plus Crimea, about 7%. Of the country. So those two most easterly regions were the ones that were closest to Russia and where it was easiest for Russia to put in its own troops to support the uprisings. It may well be that in 2022, when Russia invaded Ukraine again on the 24th of February, the Russian leadership thought that Ukrainians would rise up and support the invasion because the Russian leadership kept saying that Ukraine wasn't a real country. But They were completely wrong, and Ukrainian people have resisted fiercely the Russian invasion. So what about Russian security concerns? Of course, Russia, like any country, has genuine security concerns. Russia was invaded by Napoleon in 1812, and as the Soviet Union, by Nazi Germany in 1941, its former ally with whom it had invaded Poland in 1939. Since the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989, numerous countries in the east of Europe have asked to join NATO and have done so, including Poland, Hungary and the Czech Republic in 1999 and the Baltic states, formerly part of the Soviet Union, in 2004. And Russia consistently opposed those expansions. Given that NATO was originally established as a defensive alliance against the Soviet Union, it's understandable that Russia is neuralgic about its expansion and about the disappearance of the security belt of Warsaw Pact countries that used to shield it to the West. Now, while NATO may may argue that it's a defensive alliance, when it gets engaged in the Balkans or in the Middle East, that really undermines its defensive image. Nonetheless, the notion that NATO countries would actually attack Russia militarily, a nuclear-armed country, is absurd. None of Russia's NATO-related concerns have changed since Russia invaded Ukraine the first time 
in 2014. Since then, only two countries have joined NATO. Prizes for who knows which ones they are. It was Montenegro in 2017 and North Macedonia in 2020, two tiny Balkan countries. One other thing that people often argue about is whether NATO made a promise not to expand eastwards back in the 1990s. Now, this is based on the 2 plus 4 negotiations of 1990, which included the Soviet Union and which led to the treaty. It's called the Treaty on the Final Settlement with Respect to Germany, signed in Moscow on the 12th of September 1990. That treaty led to Germany becoming fully sovereign on the 15th of March 1991 for the first time since the Second World War. As a result of these negotiations, including to secure Soviet agreement to a united Germany remaining in NATO, it was agreed that foreign troops and nuclear weapons would not be stationed in the former East Germany. The agreement, however, did not mention NATO expansion elsewhere. It's a matter of dispute whether Hans-Dietrich Genscher or James Baker informally said that NATO would not enlarge east of East Germany during these negotiations. There's also a 2007 speech by uh, Russian President Putin where he cites a 1990 quote from then NATO Secretary General Manfred Werner to imply that guarantees about enlargement were made. President Putin said, quotes, I would like to quote the speech of NATO General Secretary Mr. Werner in Brussels on the 17th of May 1990. He said at the time that, quotes, The fact that we are ready not to place a NATO army outside of German territory gives the Soviet Union a firm security guarantee. Where, asked Mr. Putin in 2007, are those guarantees? In fact, Werner was referring to non-deployment of NATO forces to the territory of the former East Germany after unification. What Werner actually said, these are his words, was, quotes, This will also be true of a united Germany in NATO. The very fact that we are ready not to deploy NATO troops beyond the territory of the Federal Republic gives the Soviet Union firm security guarantees. Moreover, we could conceive of a transnational period during which a reduced number of Soviet forces could remain stationed in the present-day GDR, that's East Germany. This will meet Soviet concerns about not changing the overall East-West strategic balance, unquotes. So that was what Mr. Werner actually said in 1990. No one on the Western side made any written or formal guarantees about NATO expansion in 1991. But the debate about whether the Soviet Union could reasonably have inferred from what was said a promise not to expand is actually a red herring because the Russian leadership of 2022 has built its own complete alternative version of history, including a perceived threat from NATO to justify its terrible actions in invading Ukraine. I hope you enjoyed that edition of writing books and stories. If you'd like to keep up with these podcasts, do subscribe, then you'll get alerted every time there's a new one. Finally, 
If you want to know all about my writing and thoughts on life, do take a look at rleeturner.com. That's my regular blog, full of posts, hundreds of posts on all kinds of things. So do check it out and subscribe to that too, if you like. Thanks again for listening. 